Hezekiah was a reformer. He uh, was excited about God, excited about what God wanted for the nation, excited about what God was doing in his life. And so he had called the people together to celebrate the Passover. It was something that, uh, it was his zeal. Uh, and he made a, a hasty call. He said, everybody gather, called to the 12 tribes, and they uh, came. And so from what we read here in Second Chronicles, there was uh, a group, at least from three of the tribes, that they're described as, in some of the translations, say a multitude of people that were unclean. They hadn't ceremonially cleansed themselves to get ready for the to celebrate the Passover together. And so why was that? Well, it could have been ignorance. Um, they could be... They maybe they were still living in some form of superstition. They'd been away a long time from following the ways of God. They had, they had gone off and they had done whatever they were going to do, and so they had been estranged from the law and from the requirements of the law, and likely were just ignorant to what they were supposed to do. And so they showed up um, to celebrate the Passover. They showed up to celebrate the feast with God's people. They answered the call of the king. And so they came. And it's kind of an interesting moment because uh, under ideal circumstances, likely that wouldn't have happened. But under the circumstances that existed, the reality of what was going on, it did. And so this multitude of people showed up unclean and unprepared for what they were there to do. Uh, at least as far as the law is concerned. And so that, that word for multitude, uh, it, it's used in other places in the Bible where it talks about increase of something like an increase of children or an increase of money, uh, those types of, of usages. So that's, that's the, the numbers of people that were there. In other words, there's more than you realize, more than you could see, more than you could plan for. And so that multitude of people had showed up and they were illegally eating and celebrating the Passover. And I say illegal, meaning that it was was contrary to the law. And so I want to talk to you really about what happens after that. Okay, so that's the established issue that takes place here, is that you have a reinstitution of this festival. You have a reinstitution of this meal. You have this uh, reinstitution of this time of celebration, uh, a ceremonial time, a a time where the people gathered and they were supposed to gather. It was something that had been prescribed through the generations. They were supposed to do it and yet it had fallen away. And so they hadn't done it for many years. Hezekiah, like I said, being excited, full of zeal, wanted to reinstitute this and said, all right, so we're going to all gather together, come on out, and we're going to have this time of celebration. He does it, and a bunch of people showed up and just weren't ready. They, they weren't prepared. They were ignorant to what they were supposed to do before they got there. And so that's the setup. That, that's what happened. And so what happens after that is really what I want to look at, and the response to that, and I'm going to speak especially to people that you, especially people that have a really kind of high sense of, justice like in in you like you you really have a strong sense of justice about you what do i mean by that i mean uh that that you have a strong sense about how things should be that this is the way things should happen these are the way things should be and this is how it is 
And a lot of us have a strong sense of justice. In other words, this is what should happen. And a lot of times it doesn't, but we still have a, that strong sense about it. Uh, we, we comfort ourselves by saying things like, what comes around goes around. You know that? Yeah. All right, so you can comfort yourself by saying that, but it's not always true. It's not always true that what comes around goes around. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and whether or not we comfort ourselves with saying that or not, I mean, that's up to you. It makes you feel better. But uh, the fact of the matter is is that, that we live in a world that really doesn't operate in that kind of a sense of strict justice. And, and one of the things I really want to share with you, and I want you to think about and maybe allow some space in your view of God here, is that we serve a God that has certain attributes that are more important and triumph over the law and over whatever our sense of absolute justice is. He doesn't share that with us. And and I I can give you a bunch of different illustrations from the Bible. I could talk to you about how he showed himself this way over and over and over again in the lives of uh, his people. But we have one good example here in Second Chronicles tonight about how certain things were overlooked because other things were more important. And that's really what I want to get across is this idea of there are certain things that are a lot more important than whatever our sense of justice is. There are lots of things that are more important. There's bigger fish to fry than whether or not somebody gets what's coming to them. Because thank God we don't get what's coming to us. And I know we don't think about it that way, but that's the truth. And so if that's good for us, then that's also good for other people. And so we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more. But the first statement I want to make is this, that mercy trumps the law, always. And so mercy is a more important principle than that sense of justice that some of us have in us. Because mercy is a big deal. Mercy is a big principle when it comes to God and who He is. I need somebody to look at uh, the book of James in the New Testament and I'll start tying in New Testament ideas to this Old Testament passage, but James chapter 2 and verse 13. And we also have a song that we wrote that also says this. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so mercy triumphs over judgment. And that's the principle of James. Uh, he's, he's New Testament principle. James is a kind of primitive book in the New Testament, uh, early book, and it's just a, a really primitive idea that the New Testament writers wanted to get across to the church. It was a general epistle written to the church, and it was a very basic idea that he really wanted people to begin to understand is that mercy triumphs over judgment. And what we're looking for, and what the book is looking for, what the letter was looking for, and the people in the church was this, that, that he wanted us to be a merciful people. He wanted us to look at what is the stronger position to have in our life. The stronger position is not a position of judgment. It's not a, a position of some kind of inner justice that's in us, that this is the way it should be and this way it has to be and all of that. But the, the stronger position for us as individuals and for us as a body of believers, 
is a position of mercy. And I know that we don't live in a world that says that, or we don't live in a world that necessarily promotes that idea, but the idea is this, that the spiritually, and, and, and really laying it down and speaking spiritually to us, mercy is a much stronger position for us than the position of judgment. The passage in Second Chronicles speaks about the good Lord. And literally, and it's the only place that, that in the Bible where it's written this way, it literally means Jehovah the good. Like God the good. Alright? And so the good Lord um, is described as the God of mercy. And, and that's the God that Hezekiah is excited about. That's the God that, that Hezekiah is following after. That's the God that Hezekiah is bringing the nation to see and to meet and to know and reintroducing them to. That's who he had all kinds of zeal toward. And so the only place that you see that is written, like in the Bible here, is right, right here is Jehovah the Good, God the Good. And so these people came before God the good in His mercy and they ate in their uncleanness. I need somebody to look at Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 and someone start reading in verse 23. We're looking at verses 23 through 35. that sense of inner justice that we have. 
And so we depend on, we look at, we receive of, we live in a certain degree of mercy all the time. And that's true not only with God, but that's true with one another, that's true in the world that we live in. All those things happen in mercy. And so the principle of mercy is something that is very basic to who we are in our relationship with our God. And it has to be. Jesus was really clear about this. He's talking about, he tells a story in order to bring people to a realization. And the realization is this, is that we're all in the same boat together. And we've all received mercy, and so we should show mercy one to another. That's the reality of it. The reality of it is, is that we depend on mercy, we, we count on mercy, we look for mercy, we receive mercy, we live in mercy, and that, that's how we exist in our relationship with God. So He has an expectation that not only we're going to receive and we're going to live in that, that reality with Him, but we're going to receive and we're going to live in that reality with one another. Or not. And, and that's really the point of the story, is that what's your choice? And he gives, the, he gives the example, you know, it's a made-up example, but he gives the example of the servant who receives just a ton of mercy. You look at the amounts uh, compared to one another. Some of the more modern translations will give you dollar amounts or whatever it would be, pounds amounts of silver or whatever, gold. But... It, the, the, the relationship between the two is ridiculous, and Jesus drew it out as ridiculous. In other words, it'd be like a million dollars versus ten dollars. It's just a ridiculous amount of money that he, the one guy gets forgiven, and then he's unwilling to forgive a ridiculously small amount of money. And, and what's being pointed out is the, the lavishness of God and how lavishly He forgives us and then our own pettiness with one another. And and so he he draws that out. I want to encourage you to see God bigger than you do. I want to see God bigger than I see him. I want to see his love bigger than I've seen his love. I want to see his mercy greater than I've seen his mercy. I want to see his grace greater than I've seen His grace. And, and I want to live in that. I want to know it. I want to participate in it in my life. Because it's from that place that I don't feel the need to make anyone else look bad. It's from that place I don't feel the need to put anybody down so I can make myself feel better. It's from that place that I don't need to judge other people. And there's no advantage in it. There's, there's nothing that makes any sense about it. Oh, look at them. They, they're messing up X, Y, and Z. Well, who cares? If you live in a place of big mercy, if you live in a place of big grace, if you live in a place of big love, it doesn't matter. That we don't need to point that out. We don't need to somehow you know, belittle someone to make ourselves feel more, like more. And so, I want to encourage you that the bigger we see God, the bigger we see His mercy, the bigger we see His grace, the bigger we see His love, the better we're going to treat one another. Some of you came out of church situations uh, for whatever, for better or for worse, right? And uh, you may have experienced, for better or for worse, 
different degrees of what I'm talking about. One of the first churches I went to after I became a Christian, I was in college, I think I was 19 or whatever, 20, and I was going to a church and of course I was looking at stuff that was on the walls in the church. It's mostly stuff that people ignore, but I was looking at it, trying to figure out what was going on, because I didn't have any idea what was going on, and they had these, this rack of pamphlets and all of these different things, and you know it's kind of the same rack that they they have the church pens that have been there for forty years, and and the and the giving envelopes, yeah, and uh, and then all the pamphlets that explain about the church and different ordinances or whatever's going on in the church or doctrines or whatever, and so I gathered a few of them just so I could read about it and took a free pen, and uh, and so. I wanted to know more about this church that I was starting to go to. And so I started looking it up. It's before the Internet. You know, you can just click on that stuff now, except the pen. But you didn't need the pamphlet. I mean, you, not now. You did then. So I started reading about it, and I'm looking through the pamphlet, and I came across church membership and how to become a member of the church. So it was a pamphlet that explained it. And so... I was looking at that, and there were a bunch of like stuff that you had to do. And I can't remember everything you had to do, but it was a bunch of stuff. And, and there, was, there was a list of all these things. It was mainly stuff that you couldn't do. Alright? Like the positive one was you could pay your tithes. Okay, that's the, that's the positive one. That's that you're gonna do that. Everything else pretty much was stuff that you're not supposed to do. And so I had a meeting coming up with the pastor, so I met with him, and I talked to him, and I said, well, I got all this stuff in here, like, what's that about? And and so he started explaining it to me, and, and I and I would kept asking questions, to the point he thought I was arguing with him. I was simply ignorant to what was happening, and I wanted to know. Like, like for example... Why can't you go to a movie theater, but you can rent a movie? Right? Like, what's the difference? Is it the movie, or is it the public perception of someone seeing you going into the theater? Which is it? And and so, like, I was seriously asking that question because I wanted to try to understand it. Because if I can rent a movie, the same movie that I can't go into a movie theater to see, then what is the real issue to that? And that's what I wanted to know. And and I frustrated him. And I did, because it was frustrating for him to have to try to answer something like that to even begin to justify how these rules existed and why. And And I don't blame him. I don't blame anything to do with him. He didn't make up the pamphlet. That pamphlet, I'm sure, had been there for 30 years before he got there. But it was in the rack on his watch. So, he was the guy I was going to ask. And and so I did. And we went through that, and, and it probably extended on for a couple more times when I met with him. But uh, it, it struck me, even at that time, even kind of being young in my faith and kind of young in, in what I was doing, it kind of struck me that is this stuff really that important? And I, I came to the same conclusion that I have now, and that's no, it's not. 
we make it important for whatever reasons we have, and there's probably a bunch of reasons why people want to do that, but it, it's not that important. It doesn't mean that much. It, it's not something that should be dominating conversation. It's not something that should be dominating our mind. It's not something that should be dominating our heart or our lives. And if you came out of a system like that from the time you're little until whenever you left, you've got to realize that you've been indoctrinated into something that may or may not be of very much benefit to your current relationship with Jesus. In fact, it may be hindering your current relationship with Jesus. Because if you were brought up in a system that emphasized those kind of small things, to me, those kind of things that don't matter, those kind of things that, that don't really have any bearing on our real and true relationship with God, then you begin to have this warped idea and this warped perception of who God is. And it is warped. Because we see God as, as some kind of uh, mean thing, some kind of strict thing that... It's only done this way, and that's the only way it can be, and that's all there is to it. And it may have something to do with our, our, our very well-developed and strong sense of justice that some of us have. Because that was who we were told, and that was what we were modeled as. That's Well, that's who God is. Well, if you read this story in Second Chronicles, uh, how do you explain that? If God's just right by the book, that's it. That's all you got. These people were guilty. All right? They ate illegally. They participated illegally in this celebration, in this thing that was going on. They had participated illegally in the Passover meal in, the, in, this, in this time in the nation uh, of Israel. And so they were guilty of that. And they should have, if God is who you think He is, or who you were told He is, or, or whatever it was that was modeled to you, if that's who He is, then they should have been punished. But they weren't. Because other things are more important. And they're still more important. They've always been more important. And they'll always be more important. And it's kind of interesting, you look at you know different people in the Bible, I mean... I'm just going through my Bible reading plan for this year. I'm going through David right now. That's the part of Scripture I'm in, at least in Samuel, Second Samuel, or I don't know where it is, somewhere in Samuel. And and so that's the part I'm reading about. And, and some of the stuff that David did, you know, we read about it, and it is it is not in line with the strict interpretation of the way people see God because God had mercy on him more than once. God showed mercy to him and his family more than once. There were exceptions that were made. I mean, even you know, Jesus points out about David and, and his men, they went into and were given the, the showbread. And they ate of the showbread, but they weren't priests. But it was okay. It was okay. And, and Jesus, if you really read what Jesus is saying when he's speaking to some of these re religious zealots that he's speaking to, Jesus was pointing out these things and, and in pointing out the fact that certain things are so much more important than what these people were so concerned about. They were concerned about, they were more concerned about him healing on the Sabbath than someone getting healed. And he was trying to point out to people, that's messed up. 
You're so concerned that I, that that I'm I'm doing this thing, what you would consider this work on the Sabbath, and so you can't get past the fact that by your definition of work that I'm breaking the Sabbath, but at the same time you can't seem to see that people are healed, that people that couldn't walk can now walk, a guy's hand that wasn't working, it, well now it works, a person that had leprosy. Oh, all of a sudden, they're clean and they don't have leprosy anymore. You can't see any of that. You're just concerned about, I might have broken this one thing that you have a, a this, this little thing about as far as me breaking the law on the Sabbath. And that's what you're concerned about. Not the well-being of that person. Not that person's life being made whole. Not the fact that the power of God is being manifest in your midst. Not the fact that there's miracles taking place right in front of you. Now, you're not worried about any of that. You're worried about, oh, he technically broke the Sabbath because we don't like people doing healing works on the Sabbath. And Jesus kept saying over and over again, you're messed up. You're messed up. And so, the mercy piece of this, and and even in that story that, that Jesus told, the mercy piece of this is basic to who God is and who He wants us to be. That He's a God of mercy. He's He's the good God, Jehovah the Good. All right, that's who He is. He's He's God the Good. And what He calls us to is to be a people that see Him as God the Good, as as a God of mercy, but to also be a people of mercy with one another. And and part of that starts with you. I don't, especially those of you that are so hard on yourselves. I mean, I've got a super critical eye. I mean, probably not as critical as like, you know, some of you. Like, like Krista's got a really critical eye and some of the rest of, some of you have, have really critical eyes because of what you do for a living or maybe that influence what you do for a living or whatever. I have a really critical eye. Yeah, I, I watch things, I see things. You know, in, in when I was a kid and, and later on, even through high school, when I'd be tested, that'd be one of the highest scores I'd get is picking out details. All right? And so whenever, you know, something happens, let's say I do anything, like I'll listen to what I'm saying right now. I'll, I'll get the podcast. I'll listen to it. I don't listen to it because I think I'm so awesome. You know, that's not why I'm listening to it. But I'm picking things out in it that I can improve on. I'm picking things out that that I can I can do better, I can say better, I can illustrate better, I could not use that word wrongly again or whatever, and so I'm constantly picking things out. But it's with the idea that I just want to get better. It's not to beat myself up. It's not to make myself feel bad about it. It's nothing like that. It's that I just really want to get better at what I'm doing, and so I'm willing to listen to it. And take that hour a week to listen through it and make some improvements as I go. Okay, now that is a far cry from beating yourself up because over every mistake that you make. And and that's not I'm not talking about using your your power, your your like whatever it is, that your abilities in order to improve yourself, that's one thing. It's another thing just to beat yourself up. 
and to beat yourself into a corner where you're afraid to even try anymore. And so, I, I want to encourage you that mercy is bigger. Grace is bigger. God's goodness is bigger and more important. And we're all going <coughs> to, excuse me, we're all going to mess up. We're all going to do things that we shouldn't do. We're all going to fail. We're all going to fall short. We're all going to come up and not be able to get get done what we think we should get done or whatever it is. But it's going to happen. And what's bigger than all of that and what's bigger than our mistakes, what's bigger than our shortcomings, what's bigger than our failure is God and His mercy. And if we're going to represent Him and we're going to tell people about Him and we're going to be a people that are going to be able to share who He is with people, well, we need to get it right to start with in our lives too. I'm not afraid to talk about God being big in mercy because I'm a recipient of it all the time. I'm not afraid to talk about how God is good. God the good, because He is. And I'm a recipient of that relationship with Him all the time. And I want people to hear that, and I want people to know that. And I recognize that that message was so basic to the original gospel. That was the good news. That's part of that good news that it was being spread through the whole world, that that's part of the good news. And I want to be a part of spreading that kind of good news into people's lives. So mercy trumps the law. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, so does grace. Grace also trumps the law. Grace is is something that that, that we're, we're being favored for what reason? For no reason. And I know that, that some people just have such a hard time with that. What do you mean for no reason? I mean for no reason. Why? Why grace? Yeah, well, why not? God chose it. God decides it. God said, okay, here, grace. I'm going to give you grace. And that grace trumps the law and all that is a part of the law. So I'm going to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 7. Again, this is a basic sermon that, from Jesus. And this is, what he, okay, this is what He wants you to know. This is what He wants you to know. This is a, like a basic truth that Jesus wanted those people that were following Him, including His disciples, including those that had left everything to follow after Him, including those that had just gathered to hear what He had to say. This is a basic word to them. Matthew 5, 7. Alright. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. When we talk about grace, when we talk about mercy, we're talking about pardon. This passage tells us that Hezekiah looked, he saw the people, and, and a multitude, not just a few, a multitude of people had shown up. I mean, up to 25% of the people that were there. I mean, there's a lot of people representatives showing up and they weren't prepared, they weren't ready, and they were in violation of the letter of the law. He saw that. And the Bible tells us that he prayed for them that God would pardon them. He'd forgive them for what they had done. And it says that he did. 
In other words, that the idea of grace, the idea of mercy, is a part and make atonement on behalf of, and this is the interesting word here to me, and it is literally this, to make atonement on behalf of every one. Everyone. Not just some, not just a few favored, not just the ones that really were ignorant or didn't mean it, or whatever other judgment you want to put in your mind or your heart or however it was that they were divided up. It wasn't that. He said every one would be healed. If your Bible says pardoned, if your Bible says healed, if your Bible says whatever it says in that passage, the word there for healed is the strict Hebrew word for physical healing. And what we understand from that is that people are going to be made whole. That, yeah, they may be doing the wrong thing in their ignorance. They may be doing the wrong thing because they're out of practice. They may be doing the wrong thing because they've been way far away from God for a long time. They may be doing the wrong thing because they, they weren't taught, they weren't told, they didn't know, and they were showing up and it was the wrong thing. But something more important was happening. Because... There was a hunger in them to gather as a people. There was a hunger in them to experience God together. There was a hunger in them to worship God in that place, in that time. There was a hunger in them, hunger in them to celebrate their God together. And that was more important than whether or not they had followed every rule to get there. Can you handle that? And I really, I want you to think about that. I want you to really think about how that was more important. In other words, life is greater than the literal observance of the rules. Life's greater. And in addition to that, the internal, what's going on inside of you, what's going on in your inner life, in your inner person, your inner man, your inner woman, is more important is greater than the external. Because how were they not clean? They weren't clean on the outside. They hadn't gone through the rituals. They hadn't done what they were supposed to do in order to make themselves clean on the outside. Well, the outside is just representative of the inside. Right. Because the internal, that which was going on in their heart, that which was going on inside of them was greater than what they had neglected on the outside. And so that internal truth, that internal life, that internal reality that was inside of them was of more importance to God, was of more importance to Hezekiah, was of more importance in the bigger picture of things than what they had neglected on the outside. Now when we first started the church here, we had some rough people coming around. I mean, a lot rougher than they are now. You guys are sophisticated <laughs> and bathed and stuff. You're, you're looking good. You don't stink, right? I mean, your clothes are washed. You guys look good, mostly. And, and so what I'm trying to say is, is that we, we had some rough people when we started out. And they were rough. And I don't mind the rough people. I don't, I don't care. 
And but I mean, we did. We had some rough people, and they get up sometimes. And it's you know thirty second share time at kinship, or we might have share time at church. That was an adventure every week. <laughs> share time at church was an adventure, and I used to run share time. You know how we have MCs running stuff? Mm-mm. No, no, I'd be running that because you never knew what was about to happen. Because these are people that weren't really brought up in the church. The people didn't know how things run. The people didn't know how to say it the right way. Didn't know how to speak. A limited vocabulary. A limited vocabulary. And you think about people that you know with a limited vocabulary. Alright? And so, you know, they get up to talk. They start talking about like how God did something. And it'd be effing great. <laughs> Except they weren't saying effing. You know, and you look around and, you know, it's like, hmm, some people are cringing, you know. You kind of tell my people's faces, like, were you brought up in church? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> you can't say that. Like lightning's coming down or something. Whatever. So, so we kind of all learn together that what's important and what's not, Okay. What was important is they were really excited about what Jesus was doing in their life. That was what was really important. What wasn't so important is they didn't have the vocabulary to describe it in such a way that church people could be comfortable with it. I'd rather have them excited about what Jesus was doing than than worried about if everybody in the place is at a certain comfort level. And, And so we valued one thing, and we decided as a church to value one thing, more than the other. And we did. And I think it was to our advantage to do so. And it was to the advantage in those people's lives that we did. And that was borne out through the, the fruit of what came from all of that and the fruit of those lives even now. So I, I, I want to encourage you that there's certain things, like I was saying, that are greater than Life is greater than the little stuff. And what's internal is greater than what's external. And and we, we have to have that kind of an understanding about what God's doing in people's lives. I don't want to be that guy that, that's cutting off what God's doing because somebody doesn't look the right way. Or doesn't sound the right way. And, and, and you can figure out whatever I mean by right, because I'm, I'm not being really serious about it. But whatever, you know, like the culture, the church culture would say is right. That's what I'm talking about. It's like, I, I don't want to be that guy that hinders somebody from coming to Jesus because they, they may not look right or sound right or dress right or smell right or whatever it is. I don't want to be that guy. And I want to encourage you not to be that guy either. I want to encourage you not to be that person that is going to stand in the way of what God does because you're a little bit uncomfortable. Or even a little bit more than a little bit uncomfortable. Not long after we started, we had a, a, a guy, I used to travel. I was a itinerant, I'm not a, really an evangelist, but I would go from church to church and I would uh, preach and prophesy over people and there was a particular church in Rochester that I used to go to, and I would 
participate. I'd go there pretty often and and just prophesy over people. I'd be part of uh, uh, prophetic presbyteries that they'd bring in. They'd have me be a part of that because the people knew me. I would speak. I would do all kinds of stuff with the church. And so after we started the church here, the pastor of that church asked if he could come and visit the church because he just wanted to see what we were doing. I'm like, sure, come on out. And so he showed up on a particular Sunday. He didn't tell me when he was coming. But he showed up on a particular Sunday that we were uh, we were looking at a parable. And so had everybody in small groups and they were dissecting a parable that we had up on the screen and they were discussing and then they were ministering to one another. And at the time we had at least two, maybe more cross-dressers that were coming. And, and so, you know, they were obviously, they weren't good cross-dressers either. They were like dudes, you know, like you could see. They were guys. And so, mainly, it was mainly guys to girls. There were a couple girls that you couldn't tell, but there was really a couple guys that were dressed like women, but they looked like guys. You know what I'm talking about? Like they didn't shave, you know, or something. And they weren't trying that hard. And so, even this guy, I mean, he, he's like Mr. Straight Lace Pastor Guy from the suburbs, right? And he, he could even tell. I mean, it was obvious. So, he came in and, and you know, he's... He's, he, he participated in the service. He got with me afterwards. He's like, um, you know, do those, guys, do those those men come here often? I'm like, yeah, yeah, this, this is where they go to church. He's like, you just let them do that? Like, let them do what? He's like, dress like that. I'm like, I ain't at their house in the morning. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, I think it, it kind of caught him off guard that I just didn't care, Right? Because there's something more important going on than that. Okay, these guys dress up like ugly women. All right, that that's bad. All right, they got more. They have bigger problems than dressing up like ugly women, though. They got some deeper spiritual issues going on that God's ministering to. That God's doing a work in their life about. That's a lot more important than you know their clothing choice for the day. And, and I know for some of you, man, that's so hard. It's like, how could you let that happen? What, what? Yeah, there really are more important things than that. There really are. There's really more important stuff than what I was just talking about. And I know God's ministering to them. I know God is ministering to their lives. And there are certain things that are happening and certain things that are going on in them that are super important. And I'm not going to hinder that to make people feel comfortable. I don't want to be that guy. In Luke chapter 10, you have the story about Mary and Martha. You know that story? Yeah, Jesus came to visit. And Martha, she's getting everything ready, getting everything done, and and getting stuff ready. And working, 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 and and cooking and whatever else was happening. And then you got Mary and she's just sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. And so Martha finally got frustrated enough. She went up to Jesus. She said, can you tell my sister to help me out? We got a bunch of people here to feed. We got to cook the food. We got to get everything ready. We got to prepare everything. We got to get stuff on the table. We got all this stuff to do. And she's just sitting here listening to you. And, and I mean, 
there's, there's, there's a validity to that. You hear her? I mean, you've been in that situation where you got, you're the one doing all the work and you got somebody else doing what you consider to be not the work. Right? You know, it was like a number of years ago when they started uh, forcing everybody in college courses to work in groups. You ever, you ever have that happen? That's the worst, man. Because there's always two people in that group going to do all the work and you got three people in that group you never hear from them. But you're all going to get the same grade. Yeah. Anyway, it's not exactly that, but you know what I'm talking about. And so you got that frustration, the way Martha was seeing it, that's what she was seeing. She was like, yeah, I'm doing all the work. She's not doing anything and I need some help. So tell her to help me. And Jesus' response, though, was setting things back in perspective. What was his perspective? The inside is greater than the external. What was his perspective? The spiritual is greater than the physical. Life is greater than whatever she was worried about. And so Jesus, again, putting things in perspective. Jesus, again, putting things in order. Because we get so caught up and do this, do that, get it done. And that's not as important, though, as the spiritual work and the spiritual things and the internal things that need to happen in people's lives. You see, worship, which is what they were gathering to do in Second Chronicles here, worship is more vital to life than following all the rules. Their worship would be more vital to life than following the rules. So why discourage it? I mean, Hezekiah could have told you know that multitude of people, yeah, you guys can't participate because you didn't follow the rules and you're not exactly right, so you can't do that. Why discourage them? These are a bunch of people that have been so far from God for so long they couldn't even remember how to get themselves right. They couldn't remember how to do it. It wasn't written down anywhere. It wasn't passed down anymore. Nobody knew how to do it. All they knew is that they wanted to be there and they wanted to worship and they wanted to participate in what was happening. That's all they knew. And Hezekiah, instead of putting a damper on that, Hezekiah looking at that and discouraging it, he's like, come on in. And so instead of telling them no, he says, you know what? I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to pray for you instead. And so he didn't discourage him. Why discourage him? Hezekiah saw God for who he was. He saw a goodness. And goodness is an attribute of God. There are certain attributes of God that he has. There are certain like absolute attributes that God has. And goodness is one of those strong attributes of God. You think of attributes of God, you think of omniscience, meaning he knows everything, omnipresence, he's everywhere all the time omnipotence, he's all-powerful. Well, goodness is, a, is an attribute of God. And Hezekiah understood that the goodness of God is just really a part of who he is, representative of who he was. And Hezekiah had to make a call there. He had to err on the side of mercy. He had to err on the side of grace. He had to err on the side of love. If he was going to err at all, it was going to be on that side of things. 
He's like, he'd rather encourage these people to celebrate and to worship because, like I said, that's more vital to life than following the rules. So I'm going to, he, he's going to celebrate, he's going to encourage that kind of celebration and he'll intercede. He'll do what he needs to do, but he's going to encourage them to worship. So, we need to live like it. If we believe that goodness is an attribute of God, if we believe that, that it's more vital to worship, more vital to life, then let's live like it. Let's not discourage people in their faith. Let's not discourage people in their walk, no matter how primitive it is. Let's not discourage people from actually experiencing God even though they don't meet all of the rules. Because maybe the rules just aren't that important. Maybe there's stuff that's so much more important than the rules. And so Hezekiah decided to live like it. I'm going to live like God's goodness is an attribute of God. I'm going to live like worship is more vital to life than following the rules. And here's how I'm going to live like it. I'm going to tell these people to come on in and participate in this feast. I'm going to tell these people to come on in and celebrate and worship. I'm going to tell these people to come on in and, and I'm going to intercede for them. I'm going to put it on me to intercede for these people so that they can experience the presence of God in their life. Because that's more important than following all the little things that aren't going to matter in comparison. That's what he did. I mean, his zeal had called them together. And so, he concerned himself to be an intercessor for them. He really believed and he practiced what he believed. And so if we're going to be somebody that represents God, I know that's kind of a big thing to say, but in a sense we are whether we want to or not. We have faith. We live out a certain faith. Whatever that means to us. But we're living it out. And, and so in a certain way, we represent Him, but we need to live like something that we actually believe, something we actually experience. We all experience the mercy of God. We all experience the grace of God. We all experience the goodness of God. We all experience the love of God. And if we're going to have any understanding of, of what's greater than the other, well, life's greater, and what's in me is greater, and what's, what's happening in, in worship is greater, and all of those things are greater. Well, let's live like that. Let's actually live like that. Let's actually live as a people of grace and mercy and forgiveness. I don't know that Jesus could have made it any more clear through the Gospels. Because he was super clear about it. He's like, if you want to live a certain way, then this is what's expected of you. You want mercy? Show mercy. You like forgiveness? We'll be a forgiving people. I mean, and, and that's not a threat. It's just that what you begin to notice is if you're a person who lives in mercy 
in your life. In other words, you recognize the mercy of God. You recognize the grace of God. You recognize the love of God. You recognize what it is to live in all of those things. Then you are usually a person of mercy and grace and love too. It wasn't a threat. It's just a fact of life. So we want to live in His mercy and His grace. Well, we're probably going to be a people of mercy and grace. I think about how big God's love is. Well, I'm going to show as big a love as I can. It's just who it is. It's who I am. And the way you see yourself in God's family manifests through your life. And that's just the way it is. It's kind of like you grew up in a human family. Well, there's portions of that family that manifest in your life whether you want them to or not. It's just the way it is. And and it's kind of interesting. They've done studies on kids growing up in certain households. And, and I forget what the percentages are, but it's ridiculous that kids that grow up in like stable households, as far as uh, emotionally, physically, usually have fewer physical issues than kids that grow up in instability. Like I, I, there was a the statistic that I read. They they did a study on it of kids that grew up in relatively stable households, and they did it by uh, hospitalizations. And the differences between kids that grew up in stable households versus kids that grew up in turbulent households in the number of hospitalizations was staggering. Sickness, disease, it like manifests in their physical bodies. Weird, right? It's weird. Well, our relationship with God, our family, our part in His family, manifests through us. And, and again, like I said, it's not, it wasn't a threat Jesus was making. It's just, it's just how it is. And so a people living in big mercy, a, a people living in big love, a people living in, with Jehovah the good, their life's going to reflect that. It's going to manifest through our lives. And so all I can do is encourage you to begin to, to see God differently. To, to begin to experience Him as Jehovah the Good, as the, Lord, the God who is a God of mercy, the God of grace, the God of love, big love for us. And as we see Him that way and we understand Him that way, that's going to manifest through our life. And we in turn become better representatives of who He is confident in His grace. Like Hezekiah was confident in His grace. He Before he interceded, he's like, come on in, participate. And then he interceded for him, but he was confident in the grace and the love and the goodness of God that it would be okay. And it was okay. And so I want you to, to see this in Second Chronicles. The reason I picked it out from the Old Testament is this is the God we serve. And I know some of you may have had this idea of God, well, He was just really strict back then, but everything changed. And no, it didn't. He's always been big love. He's always been Jehovah the Good. He's always been merciful and full of grace. Even, even when you read stuff where it seems like things got bad, I mean, you were talking hundreds of years most of the time where people could have changed and just chose not to. 
I encourage you that we serve a God who loves you. Let Him love you. Let Him love you. And let Him begin to build a confidence in His grace for your life. I'm going to take a moment. I want to pray for you. See what God may say to you during this time of prayer. And I, I encourage you just to, to keep your, your heart and your mind open. Keep your ears open during the time of prayer to see what God might say to you. Father, I thank you that your love is bigger, your grace is bigger, your mercy is bigger. That you're God the good and you're so good in our lives. You've shown that over and over, over again. I pray that we begin to see you differently. We begin to see that grace and we begin to see that mercy. We begin to see that love that be magnified in our life more and more and more. We I thank you that you, you show all kinds of patience and all kinds of mercy and all kinds of grace all the time to us. And I ask you tonight that we would be able to see that, I mean really see it, and experience it, and live it. That Jesus says you were shifting perspectives during your ministry, shifting perspectives by your teaching, shifting perspectives even through your interactions with people, that you would shift our perspectives tonight where they need to be shifted. I pray for more. I pray for bigger. I pray for a better understanding of just how big, how great, how powerful, how overwhelming your mercy and your grace really are. And I thank you for that. pray that you build our confidence. Build our confidence, God, in your love and in your grace. I'll give you thanks tonight. Ask God that you continue to reveal, continue to show, continue to speak. I pray for opportunities this week where we're tempted toward judgment that you would point it out that we might err on the side of mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. Have your way in us, Jesus. Pray it in your strong name. Speak us in. Amen. UCF of Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. You know, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool, you mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. I'll see a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997, 
That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. You know, yeah. 